Thank you. All right. I tell you what, I love the worship in this church. Uh, every time I get up here to speak, I feel like I'm watering your lawn after you've just had a three-inch rain. But uh, seriously, when I finish up as interim, you may see me just coming out here worshiping with you, okay? Will that be okay? Can I just sneak out here? Okay. Thank you. I mentioned football a while ago. I actually had a professional career at one time. I was a uh, prize fighter. I gave it up for two reasons. Number one, I never won any prizes. <laughs> Secondly, I gave it up because of bad hands. Referee kept stepping on them. <laughs> you know, the Bible says not to worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God your needs. Not to forget to thank him when he answers. We've been praying for rain, and guess what? He gave us some rain. So let's thank him for it, okay? Father, we just um, bow in your presence right now to say thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, your word says even when we're unfaithful, you're, you remain faithful. Father, we prayed for rain. Our land needs rain. Our rivers and streams need rain. And you graciously sent rain. We thank you for it, Lord. But Father, we need more. So we just say that open the spout, Lord. Give us more rain. Fill our lakes again. Fill our streams again. Fill our ponds so that our livestock will have water. We love you, Lord. We bless you today. In Jesus' name. Well, I got some friends here today. Uh, we have a group, uh, I don't know if it's called Supper 8, Supper 12, Supper 18, whatever it is. That, uh, some of these people I've known for 18 years, or no, 30 years. One lady was my secretary at Highland for many years. And we have a little group we meet together on Thursday nights. And so they came this morning. I'm going to tell you right now, one of them's from Austin. But I can't tell you which one, I'll get in trouble. If I tell her to stand up, I'll pay. So just figure it out. One of them's from Austin. But we have, we have a lot of things in common. It seems that uh, we all have the same probation officer. So that's kind of unusual to have this many people that have the same probation officer. You know, the church, is, uh, church members are a little bit like snowflakes. One snowflake by itself has very little power. But if they stick together, it takes a snowplow to move them. So God wants us to stick together, be a family. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about a subject that the Lord's really put on my heart strongly recently. This is a book by Jim Zimbala. He's the pastor of the, uh, what is it, uh, somebody help me here, uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. He started that church. His wife has no real musical skills, but she started the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. If you've never heard the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, they'll give you God bumps. I mean, they are good. Well, the, the book is simply entitled The Storm. It's actually a... 10-year-old book. He, he, this was published in uh, 2012. But he says there, there's a storm coming to the church. In fact, it's already here. This book is 10 years old. Uh, 85% of the churches in America today are in decline. 
four different research groups, independent of each other, came up with, did, that, did those surveys, and they came up with the same conclusion. 85% of the churches in America today are in decline. I was talking to Tim Randolph the other day, the director of missions for the Waco Baptist Association, and I, I asked him, I said, Tim, do you, do you think that's an accurate number? He said, oh, yes. He said 15% of the churches in this association are on life support. The other 30 are just not doing anything. They're just kind of hanging on. And then there's a small percent of churches that are actually growing. If you've ever been to England, if you've ever been overseas, the evangelical churches there are very, very far between. If you've ever been up north, our church sent some uh, people up there several, several years ago to plant a church uh, in Boston. I visited, the Boston I, I visited the First Baptist Church of Boston when I was there. Had an auditorium that would easily seat 1,500 people. That particular morning, they had 37 people in church. 37 people. I sat down one day and just started writing down the names of churches that have closed their doors completely since I've been in Waco. Churches like First Baptist Church of Belmead, North Waco Baptist Church. Uh, I wrote them down, but I can't remember them. Uh, we're in trouble in America today, as far as the church is concerned. So I want to talk today about the subject of <clears throat> what drives the church. What drives the church? Listen to what Mark Twain said. He said, the two most important days of a person's life are the day they were born and the day they discovered why. I think that's true of a church. It's important to know the day you were born. And in fact, at Highland, uh, next spring, they're going to be celebrating their 100th anniversary as a church. And they've asked me to come back and have a part of that ceremony. It's important to know when we were born, but it's even more important to know why we were born. See, I believe every church ought to be born on purpose, for a purpose. These church splits because somebody got a bigger piece of pie than somebody else, uh, th th that's not a God thing. And I, I don't see God blessing those, really. Uh, I'm talking about when people just get angry, get mad at each other. And, uh, I don't see that. But I want to read a verse of Scripture, and I probably don't have to read it because you probably know it by heart. I, I know it, but I want to read it. It's in Matthew chapter 28, and these are the instructions that Jesus gave his church before he went back to heaven. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me. But now listen to what he's fixing to do. He said, all authority has been given to me, but I'm fixing to give it to you. The authority the Father gave me, I'm giving you. Okay? He said, go Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to, them to observe, I'm sorry, all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And then there's another passage of Scripture that's in uh, Proverbs 29, verse 18. It says, where there's no vision, the people perish. 
You see, what churches need to understand is people don't follow programs. They follow vision. And the Bible says where there's no vision, the people perish. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to look with you. I want to look at some things. Uh, what drives churches? One of the things I think we've made a big mistake over the years, maybe the centuries, is that we've made the church a place where do you go to church? Where's your church membership? We've made it a building. This morning, for some reason, I turned on and I was listening to the Mormons. The Mormons think you really can't worship unless you're in one of their temples. And so they have these uh, plans to build all these new temples all over the world so people will have a place to go where they can worship God. Well, listen, God never meant for the church to be a building. In the Old Testament, God had a building for his people. Today, he has a people for his building. We're the people of God, therefore we're the church. The word church is uh, two Greek words for church in the New Testament. One is the word ekklesia, which means a called out. We're to be called out. We're to be different from the world. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to be the salt and light of the world. In order to be the salt and light, we have to come in contact. Light dispels darkness. So we have to come in contact with the world. We can't sit back in our church buildings and expect the, church, the world to come to us. So when I say what drives the church, I mean what guides the church. Something guides every church. And you may not realize that, but there's something that guides this church. You may not have voted on it. But I promise you, there's something that drives and guides every church. There's an expression I used to use at Highland, and these people remember, in my humble but accurate opinion. The thing that motivates and drives most churches is tradition. And, and a lot of it is a, kind of following a certain denomination, but to, a traditional church, their goal is to perpetuate the past. Let's keep, make sure we don't forget the past. Make sure we engulf the past. And anything new, any kind of new thing that comes along, it, it's almost considered almost as, a, as an enemy. Um, years ago, I pastored a church. Well, several churches are actually in Oklahoma. But I pastored a church, and uh, we, and about two or three, it was about 300 maybe when I went there, and I was there four years, and we were averaging consistently 500. And uh, I left. Well, the church, and it, it's not me. Please hear, don't hear me. I'm not saying that when, the, when I left, it fell apart. It didn't. But over the years, it started declining. And so they had me come back one day and said, Barry, just come and speak and kind of encourage our group. And I, I spoke on the subject of change. Anything that's alive is changing. We're changing. We're changing. Well, I found out later that after I left, they really didn't accept that. They thought, well, what's happened to Barry since, uh, since he left? Well, I changed too. Now, on a good day, the church averages 60. On a good day, they'll average about, about 60. And sometimes I think we've confused the word stability with stagnation. We say, well, we're, we're still a stable church. We have a, we have a good attendance. And uh, no, it's really not... Stable, it's stagnant. Most of those churches that operate under tradition or under denominational things, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with denominations. 
Denominations can be very helpful. Denominations can work together, like the Cooperative Baptist Program, to do things that one church by itself cannot do. But if I have a fault with denominations, it's this. Denominations don't teach you how to believe, they teach you what to believe. And as long as you believe what they believe, you're in good standing with them. But you move out of that zone a little bit, where you don't believe exactly what they believe anymore, and you'll find yourself getting the left foot of fellowship. So, but in a traditional church, tradition trumps the scripture. I think I told you this, but I was in a deacon's meeting one day, and we were talking about baptism and things like that. And, one, and the chairman of the deacons actually said this. He said, Pastor, we're not talking about the Bible. We're talking about Baptist tradition. We're talking about Baptist doctrine. Did you know at one time the Baptists held the belief that if you weren't immersed by a Baptist church, you weren't scripturally immersed? Have you ever seen where it says about a church, it says, here's how you join our church. By profession of faith, by transfer of letter, meaning from one Baptist church to the next, or by statement. Now, by statement, they meant that you got baptized by a Baptist church way back there somewhere, but you don't have the records anymore, so, you can't, so you're, you're, you're admitting that. You say, where did that come from? The president, the first president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, where I happen to have a master's degree, wrote a little book. It really wasn't even a book. It was more of a pamphlet. He called it the Trail of Blood. And he tried to trace the Baptist church back to Jesus Christ. You cannot trace the church through the Dark Ages. But anyway, because he tried to trace the Baptist church back to Jesus Christ, if a Baptist church had not baptized you, you're not scripturally baptized. So you've got to get rebaptized. Well, you know, there's a Hebrew word for that. What, what is it? Baloney. That's a bunch of baloney. But that's what happens. These churches, again, are, are ruled by rules and regulations. I, I remember my very first church outside of, well, when I finished seminary, you know, God called me to foreign missions, and I spent 18 years in Oklahoma. And uh, so, uh, but my first Sunday in that church, I was going to get a grab, a, going to grab a cup of coffee and go in my office to look over my message. And uh, so I went back there to the fellowship hall looking for a cup of coffee. I said, where's the coffee? And they said, we have a rule in our church. You do not brew coffee on, on these premises from 9 o'clock in the morning until 12 noon. You don't? How far is the quickest convenience store from here? Meanwhile, she was drinking a Coke. <laughs> Ugh, I wish I were making this up, but I'm not. <laughs> it's the truth. Some churches are just governed by tradition. As long as we perpetuate the past, we're okay. Okay? Growing churches are driven by mission and by purpose. Some churches are driven by personalities. It's not necessarily the personality of the pastor. There can be strong personalities in that church, but they're controlling personalities, and they end up controlling the church and the pastor. But what if it's a pastor-controlled church? 
Um, then the needs of the church are determined by the pastor. What are the pastor's needs? Sometimes a pastor's needs come out of his insecurity rather than his security. What if the needs of the pastor are not the needs of the church? What, what, what happens when the pastor leaves the church? What happens to do the needs of the church change? What happens if the pastor falls into sin? And has to be dismissed. There's a Baptist church in Waco, and I'm obviously not going to call its a name. But the pastor wrote up his own constitution. And he's untouchable. You cannot discipline him. And you cannot fire him according to the constitution. That's too much control. Many years ago when I was in Oklahoma, there was a mega church right outside of Oklahoma City. It actually was in Edmond. A church that ran about, I'd say, 2,500 a week. I, I was there a few times, visited a few times. Pastor was very well known. I knew him, but I didn't know he knew me, to be honest with you. I did not know that he knew me. And I was about 70 miles from that church. Well, he called me one day and said, Barry, I'm coming through your town tomorrow. Can we have lunch together? Sure, you know. I, I, yeah. So we sat down and had lunch. And I'm going to be careful. I don't mention his name or the church. But he said, how would you like to be the pastor of such and such church? I said, well, that's your church. You're the pastor of that church. He said, yes, but I'm about to step down to run for political office. He's going to run for governor. That's what he's going to run for. And he said, uh, I want you to be the next pastor. Uh, wow, man, you dropped a load on me here. I'm going to have to give this some thought. He said, well, let's do this. He said, just come down and preach there on a Sunday night. Get the feel of the church. Well, I'd already gotten the feel of the church. It was a wonderful church. I mean, when you walked in and sat down and the church, the choir stood up and sang, I, I, I just got chill bumps. I mean, I can't remember. One Sunday I was there and they said, uh, Worthy is the Lord and worthy uh, praise, something like that. And I mean, I just, well, so So he did. He invited me down, and I preached one Sunday night. Amazing. Well, then we went over to this house afterwards, beautiful home, and we all, you know, we're having a great time, and all at once he calls everybody in the living room. I thought, what's he doing? He said, well, y'all all know why we're here tonight. He said, uh, I'm going to step down as pastor to become uh, to run for governor, and Barry's going to be your new pastor. That wasn't the understanding I had with him at all. I mean, I was just coming in there to get the feel of the church. Well, <clears throat> I looked across the room at my wife, and she thought, what? You know, it's weird. But two weeks later, it was exposed that he had extorted hundreds of thousands of dollars from that church. Multiple affairs he had had in that church. So obviously that dropped. But when I was at Highland, the next pastor left and called me again and said, will you be the next pastor? Whoops, on said. And I said, you know what? If, if I wasn't so sure that I was where I was supposed to be, I'd have Martha pack while I prayed about it. But uh, 
But you see, pastors can go wrong also. Well, some churches are programmed. They're pretty much driven by programs, and uh, the driving force of, of the, is, is to get people in the pews. It's not necessarily to get people discipled, but it's to get people in the pews. And whatever it takes to get people in the pews is what drives the church. And again, I'll go back to a church I pastored. Uh, in fact, it was the coffee church, okay? Back in the 50s, there was a town of 3,500 that had 1,000 in Sunday school. 1,000 in Sunday school. First Baptist Church, Oklahoma City, was driving down there to find out how do you get 1,000 people. You, get, you're, you have the third of your town in this church on Sunday morning. But here's what they did. When I went there as pastor, we were, I don't know, maybe 300 or so. I kept finding all these plates that had the picture of the church on them, little replicas of the building, you know, and all kinds of little stuff like that. So I went to the uh, secretary who had been there for a long time. I said, uh, what are all these little things? I showed her. She said, oh, those were things. If you came to Sunday school six out of eight Sundays, you got one of these plates. So it was a gimmick. I talked to a man one time that said, you know, back in those days, I was walking by the church one day, smoking a cigarette. You know, you can always tell when you're close to a Baptist church, you start stepping on hot cigarette butts. But uh, no, not this church. Honestly, not this church. But a lot of Baptist churches are that way. Well, here's what they told him. They said, uh, he walked by and they said, hey, come in here a minute. They said, me? He said, yeah, put your cigarette out and come in. So he put the cigarette out, walked into the building. They said, thank you. We lacked one having our attendance goal this morning, and you just made it. Discipleship is not the bottom line. Changed hearts is not the bottom line in a church that's run like that. Uh, there was a church in Indiana several years ago that boasted of having 30,000 people in Sunday school in one day. 30,000. Well, come to find out, they had a big, long fleet of buses. They'd go out and bus the kids to the church plant and then give them a little five-minute devotion and take them home. They never even went in the church building. These are gimmick-type churches. Uh, you know, the problem with programs is that sometimes those programs don't last. Uh, I remember the last program that came out of Nashville, and uh, this was probably back in the 70s. We gave everybody in the uh, church a, a group of uh, Sunday school enrollment cards. And you just put them in your pocket, wherever you went, McDonald's or wherever you were, you asked people, can I enroll you in my Sunday school class? Doesn't even know the person, never visited your church once. But, but here was the idea behind that. Baptists came up to the conclusion that you're going to average a certain percent of your enrollment in Sunday school. And it's probably pretty true. Like if you have 1,000 people enrolled in Sunday school, you might, you might average six, 600, maybe 650. So the idea was to get everybody, in, in you, as you, many as you possibly could, enrolled in your Sunday school so they might become a part of your church. I remember a time as a Baptist that the worst day of the week was Sunday. I mean, Sunday was a bad day. I mean, you got up and went to church, and you went to Sunday school, 
He stayed for church. One of them got a quick nap, and then he came home back, back for church training at six. And then he went to worship service. I mean, they gave you a physical before you could join the church, see if you were healthy. Will Rogers said once, I would have been a Baptist, but I wasn't in good enough health to go to all their meetings. And uh, I remember Dr. Crystal, bless his heart, great preacher, great man for that matter, for, for pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas for like 50 years. He actually preached a sermon. I heard the sermon. And he called it Church the Sunday Night Place. And he used as a text John chapter 3. What is John chapter 3? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And so he said, then therefore the best time to come to Jesus is at night. What? I don't remember studying that in seminary, that that's the way you interpret that verse. But the point was he was trying to browbeat people to come to church on Sunday night. Now, you may not hear very many Baptist preachers say this, but I think one of the best things that ever happened to Baptist churches is when they quit having Sunday night church. People were worn out on Sunday. I mean, it took two days to rest from being a Baptist. And you know what? Those Sunday night services weren't that effective. I was helping a church after I retired from Highland, and, uh, well, they weren't about to give up Sunday nights. They just weren't. One Sunday night, I said, I want everybody to stand up for a minute. Just stand up. I want you to look around. I said, no, look around some more. Take a real good look. Do you see anybody in this service tonight under 60 years of age? No. I said, what is the purpose of this service? Is it just to have another worship service? And once you have it another day, don't load up Sunday so much. It's hard on families. But you see, when you're, again, governed by traditions, things like that, it's, you just don't want to give them up. Well... It's a wonderful family night. We encourage our people to have small groups on Sunday night because you met as a family. You took your kids and you met as a family. Well, another thing that drives churches is uh, some churches are building-driven. Building-driven. Winston Churchill said once, we shape our buildings, then our buildings shape us. You know, buildings impress people. Did you know the White House was built in order to impress other leaders of uh, the nations when they came to visit us. That's the reason the White House. No family needs that much house, but it was designed to impress people. You know what? They, they can drive your budget. When I was in Italy a few months ago, when we were in Italy a few months ago, I saw cathedrals that took 500 years to build. One of them had columns that I could not put my arms around, and there were 52 columns in that one church. And I thought, man, I mean, why do you need this much building? And, and they buried their guys under the platform. I don't want to be buried under the platform. Too much trouble for the Holy Spirit to, you know, tear all the concrete up when I get raised from the dead. Uh, I did a wedding in a church one time that was absolutely stunning. It had stained glass in the ceiling. It, had, it was stunning church. But on Friday night, that when we had the rehearsal, there were five-gallon buckets sitting everywhere. In fact, where the bride's mother was supposed to sit was a bucket. And I said, now, the rehearsal, you can't sit here tonight because there's 
water dripping there. But tomorrow, if it quits raining, that, that's where you're going to sit. So I went to the custodian, and I said, uh, why don't you all get your roof fixed? They said, we can't afford it. You see, we, we spent all this money building all these elaborate buildings, and after we get them built, we can't afford to maintain them. Uh, Several years ago when I was at Highland, these people remember this vividly. We were going to build a new building. We were having four services, three on Sunday morning, one on Saturday night. So we felt like it's time to build a building. So we got a committee. We explained to the committee what the procedure was. They were going to be working with an architect and that we're a debt-free church. Our constitution said we don't borrow money. So one Wednesday night, this committee shows up with the architect and presents a $17 million building. Remember that, Nancy? $17 million building. I said, I can't raise $17 million. Not only can I not raise it, I'm not going to ask these people to give $17 million for that building. That building doesn't even fit Highland. And so we didn't raise the money. We finally scrapped that. I made some enemies. Some people got mad at me and left the church over it. But uh, we finally built a building that's very comfortable. It'll sleep about 1,800 if they're sitting down. Now, it won't sleep that many if they're standing up. But, uh, and the day we dedicated that building, it was debt-free. It was debt-free. Well, some churches are driven by buildings, and some churches are driven by finances. If you're, built, if you're driven by finances, the number one question that's asked anytime something comes up is this question, how much is it going to cost? How much is it going to cost? And some of the most heated debates, I'll call them debates. I was in a Baptist meeting one night, and you ever been to a Baptist fight? Man. This guy came into this Baptist meeting one night, and he didn't know they were having business meeting. After about four or five minutes, he said, do y'all always fight like this? He said, shut up and reload. Isn't that, isn't that horrible? Some of those fights are over money. I actually had a church financial secretary look me right in the face one day and said, you know what? The most important job in this church is my job. My job is even more important than your job. I thought, how sad to be in a church where the most important thing in the church our finances. I was in this town and there was a preacher friend of mine. I think he was a pastor of uh, Disciples of Christ. I, I don't remember. It wasn't Baptist Church, but there's something he needed. And I said, well, look, if you need it for your ministry, just ask the church to buy it for you. And listen to what he told me. He said, we don't buy anything in this church unless it's an absolute necessity. And here's why. He said, we're trying to save enough money where if the congregation quits tithing, the building, the church can keep going. That church is already dead and didn't know it. I wish I were making these stories up, but I'm not. They're true stories. Number six is, uh, this is the most popular one today, seeker-friendly churches. Uh, I like to call them entertainment churches, to be honest with you. Um, and the whole purpose, everything is designed around the non-believer. What, what, what are the non-believers' needs? What do they want? 
Now, I know what Paul said. Paul said, I was all things to all men that I might gain a few. Evangelism is important. It's important to get people to come to church. But it's been my discovery in 50 years, you get people, you keep people the way you get them. If it takes stroll lights, stroll, I don't think I said that correctly, smoke coming out from under the stage, music so loud it'll almost bust your windows out. We're not doing those people a favor by letting them think that's what church is like. We're not telling them they've got to repent, trust Christ as their Savior. They're not, they're not, we're not telling them that they've got to take up a cross and follow Jesus daily. We're, we're just telling them that, you know, this is the way church is. I saw a guy preaching the other day in a pair of blue jeans. The knees were all torn out like they are today. And he had some kind of a dump truck up there on the stage. Uh, I don't know. I may be old-fashioned, but let me tell you something. I want lost people to feel uncomfortable in church. I want the Holy Spirit. I want, I want them to feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I think it's important that we do things to do what we can to reach those people. But if you're going to call it a worship service, worship in that service. If you're just seeker-friendly, put a wet bar in your foyer back there. That'll draw them. I'm being a little oversensitive here, but this is sort of a sensitive area to me. I don't think we ought to give up our worship service, worshiping God. I think we ought to have them come in and let them know that this is what it's going to be like to follow Christ. You're going to have to repent. Okay? Now, before we get too far, you all quit listening. I always try to get preached so where I get through the same time you do. Always more comfortable when you do that that way. I see people out there sometimes going. I call them clock-eyed Baptist. <laughs> okay, we talked about some things that drives churches that maybe shouldn't drive churches. What, what should drive a church? What should drive? Every church is driven by something. What should drive a church? The Great Commission should drive your church. Go into all the world and make disciples. And the Great Commission ought to be a part of your mission statement. Your mission statement is really what drives your church. If I were a prospective pastor here and I came in and, and you interviewed me, the first question I'm going to ask you is show me your mission statement. Because your mission statement states your purpose for being here. You know the sad thing? Most people in the church don't know. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. Most people in church do not know what the mission statement of their church is. If you don't know what it is, how can you carry it out? I believe your mission statement ought to be short. If your mission statement's over four sentences, it's too long. When I was at Highland, our mission statement was uh, enter his presence so that we could become his expression. We enter his presence so that we can become his expression. Or it could be something to, to, to know him and make him known. That'd be a good uh, mission statement. So... 
My question to Oak Grove Baptist Church is, what is your mission statement? Why are you here? What are you here to do? How are you going about doing it? And I'm not saying this. I love you. I'm serious. I'm very fond of this church. very fond of you. Folks, we're running out of time. We're running out of time. Jesus is coming soon. We can't play church anymore. We can't just have a church as the place where we just attend anymore. It's time to be the church. It's time to take our cities for Christ. It's time to take our communities for Christ. You know what? God has empowered us to do that. And the candle, I think, is still lit. But Jesus said you need to work while it's daylight because there's gonna, darkness is going to come. You're not going to be able to work anymore. Darkness is coming if it's not already here. So I want to challenge you. I've got about three Sundays left. I want to challenge you. Don't just make a church the place where you come. Be the church. Be the salt and light. I've said this before, and I think we're going to go eat here in a, in a few minutes. You say, well, hurry up and finish. We will go eat. I know, I know. I'm way, way ahead of you on that. Uh, when we walk in that restaurant, the atmosphere of that restaurant should change because we're believers. We're taking the presence of the Holy Spirit into that restaurant. Consequently, the atmosphere in that restaurant should change but just because we're believers. So, he's empowered us to do it. Let's go do it. Amen or oh me? Agree with me, stand.